0: Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod, where we at the Peace Research Institute Oslo bring you expert perspectives on the headlines, personal stories from the field, and cutting-edge research on the peace and conflict issues affecting today's societies. Welcome to this episode of Prio's Peace in a Pod. I am Tilda Kuklötsi, communicator at Prio. The topic of this episode is the latest climate report from IPCC, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Today, I am joined by one of the experts who has contributed to the report, my colleague Halvard Buhaug. On February 28, the IPCC launched the second part of its sixth assessment report. This part assesses the impacts of climate change, looking at ecosystems, biodiversity, and human communities at global and regional levels. It also reviews vulnerabilities and the capacities and limits of the natural world and human societies to adapt to climate change. One of the main conclusions of the report is that climate adaptation is proceeding too slowly and that measures are being implemented on too small a scale to address the major climate challenges we face. Halvar Buheg is a research professor at PRIO and a professor of political science at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. His research in recent years has focused on the connections between environment and conflict. Halvar is a chapter lead author in the sixth assessment report, and his chapter deals with key risks across sectors and regions, which synthesizes observed impacts and projected risks for all relevant societal outcomes, including conflict and displacement. Hi, Halvar. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, uh, so your, ch- your chapter in the report deals with uh, climate risk. Um, this term may not be known to most people. So could you tell us a bit more about what climate risk is uh, and what it tells us?
1: Risk in this report is defined as the potential for adverse consequences for something of value. And climate risk then is risk that is shaped or affected by climate change. In a slightly more technical uh, term, you might say that, or at least the report, uh, presents uh, climate-driven risk as shaped partly by what is called hazards, which are aspects of climate change, including extreme weather events uh, and other physical changes in the environment. But risk is also affected by a degree of vulnerability and degree of exposure in natural, natural or human systems. And so if our aim is to reduce risk, we could either um, try to mitigate or limit climate change, or we could address uh, uh, the degree of vulnerability or exposure uh, of these systems. Uh, Of course, in practice, we are trying to do both.
0: As I mentioned in the introduction, uh, your work in recent years uh, has been focused on the connection between environment and conflict. And uh, before I started working at Prio and before I became acquainted with your work, I automatically assumed that climate change led to conflict and that climate change would uh, bring about more conflicts in the world. And I think many people assume the same, Um, but the relationship between climate change and conflict is more complicated than that. At the launch of the report here in Oslo, you highlighted that the effect of climate on conflict is relatively weak compared to other socioeconomic factors. But that the effect will increase at higher global warming levels. Could you elaborate on this?
1: Certainly. Um, So the narrative that you often hear um, about how climate leads to conflict is through increasingly scarce resources. So uh, increasing temperatures and and more frequent or more severe droughts could, for example, lead to a reduction in the availability of fresh water, or it could lead to a decline in the productivity uh, in, in agricultural sectors. And when uh, incomes go down, when access to resources go down, uh, there could be increasing competition, including also violent conflict over access to these resources. That's the narrative that is fairly uh, prominently uh, presented in in certain environments. uh, But it's not necessarily uh, entirely accurate, or at least it is not a globally representative uh, description of how climate shapes peace and security. So, what is written in the report, like you refer to, is first of all that available scientific research shows that the effect of climate change, including then also extreme weather events, on armed conflict is judged to be relatively weak uh, when compared to socioeconomic and political factors. Uh, uh, as the report uh, describes, there is also uh, um, more evidence that climate has some form of effect on. Less severe conflicts, typically uh, disputes over land access between different land user groups, between farmers and herders in parts of Africa, for example. There's relatively robust evidence for a connection there, but there's much less evidence uh, for a connection between adverse environmental conditions and severe armed conflicts and wars. So that's one aspect of this. Another aspect is to look into different phases of conflict. Um, Again, there is more evidence for research on the effect of climatic changes on the continuation of conflict, whereby conflict appears to be somewhat harder to end, meaning they will tend to last longer and potentially also to escalate in severity if an area that hosts a conflict is then also affected by an extreme weather event, for example, like a drought. There is less evidence uh, that climatic conditions trigger the initial outbreak of violence. And so when you take all of these different aspects and and different pathways through which climate can affect conflict and compare them to similar pathways for other non-climatic factors, Uh, the literature concludes that there is uh, some effect in certain contexts, but that effect is is relatively modest. Um, And then looking forward, uh, there is also increasing scientific uh, agreement, I think it's fair to say, um, that the effect of climate on conflict is likely to increase just because uh, the weather is becoming more extreme and populations will increasingly be exposed to conditions that we have no experience with in the past. And so there's a huge uncertainty about what we will face in the future. And part of that uncertainty could also be an increased risk of uh, violent conflict. Uh,
0: Another thing that uh, this um, report highlights, which I mentioned in the the introduction, is uh, that climate adaptation is proceeding too slowly. Um and uh, your work highlights uh, actually that the adaptation to climate change can inadvertently increase uh, the risk of social instability and conflict. Could you explain this and how can we avo- avoid that happening?
1: Yes, so in general, climate ad- adaptation is immensely important. I mean, uh, we, we need to mitigate climate change. We need to uh, cut quickly and comprehensively emissions of of, uh, uh, greenhouse gases in order to minimize future climate impacts, but we also need to adapt to those changes in the environment that we cannot avoid, right? And that's why uh, adaptation is so important to reduce vulnerability to future climate change. Uh, But what is new in this report is a stronger awareness that some adaptive responses could Uh, have negative implications, what we would refer to as maladaptation. And there are generally two different types of maladaptation. One is just an adaptive effort that fails. You try to change your behavior in order to reduce risk, but that change of behavior doesn't result in a reduced risk. Uh, A more likely, perhaps, type of Uh, maladaptation is that you uh, succeed in reducing one risk, but uh, um, uh, at the the expense of increasing a different type of risk. So one example here could be, for example, that to address an increasing frequency of drought and also increasing temperatures, maybe you will uh, pump more groundwater to do irrigation to avoid loss of, of crop yields. But if that same groundwater is also used for human consumption, there could be an increased risk of lack of water for human consumption as a consequence of addressing agricultural risk because of climate change. So that is one example of how uh, some types of adaptation could also inadvertently uh, increase risk of conflict.
0: So what would you say are the key takeaways uh, from this report that people and maybe specifically policymakers should take note of?
1: Well, I think there are multiple high-level messages that are worth mentioning. Um, one is that uh, climate change occurs more rapidly than we uh, thought previously. That was actually highlighted already in the first uh, part of the IPCC6 assessment report that was released last uh, August. Uh, so compared to projections from the previous main assessment report, we are today already experiencing slightly more, uh, larger uh, changes in our climate system than what we anticipated only a few years ago. So that's one uh, key insight. Uh, a second insight is what you referred to in your, in your opening remarks, that adaptation occurs too slowly and at a, uh, a too small scale to fully address uh, these changes and the challenges that come with climate change. So many societies are reasonably well adapted and, and, and well equipped to respond to ongoing climate change and, and we live in Norway, and we are privileged to live here and at least for the foreseeable future, uh, we would seem to be able to adapt to, for example, slowly increasing sea level rise or slowly increasing sea levels, uh, a gradual change in flood risk, gradual change in heat wave risk, et etc, et etc. Uh, but not all societies are equally well, well equipped to address those risks. And of course, Norway does not exist in isolation from the rest of the world. We live in a globalized and connected world. So, risks that materialize elsewhere could also translate into adverse consequences, uh, also in Norway, of course. Uh, so, uh, the observation and the realization and the evidence that adaptation take, uh, goes um, or happens too slowly is another major risk uh, or a major takeaway message from this report. Um, and a third key message uh, I would also want to highlight from the report is uh, precisely the inequality in how climate risk and climate impacts play out across regions, but also within regions, within societies, across communal groups, for example, within societies. And you could even break that down by age categories or gender for that matter or class and so climate change is a challenge that affects everyone but it does not necessarily affect everyone uh, equally and those uh, uh, regions and those societies and those groups within society that are the most vulnerable are also the ones who are face the gravest risks from climate change.
0: I want to turn the focus a bit um, and ask you about how it is to be a researcher in the field of climate change and conflict and how it is to contribute to such an extensive report on a topic that concerns all people on this planet. Um, I am curious to know how you got appointed to work on the report uh, and to be a chapter lead author. Uh, What is this process like and how does the IPCC make the selection?
1: So formally it is the IPCC Bureau which is I guess, the governing body of the IPCC who selects authors and invite authors. Um, but they will only select authors who have uh, uh, been nominated to become authors of the report. And and the uh, process of nomination probably varies between countries. In Norway, uh, there is a call at some point where you may nominate yourself or others. So basically, you just submit a very simple application. You attach your CV or the CV of the nominee and then uh, the Norwegian Environment Agency, which is the contact point towards the IPCC Bureau, will quickly go through uh, the uh, uh, nominations and uh, they will forward all of the nominations if all of them look uh, appropriate to the IPCC Bureau. And then it's the IPCC Bureau that makes the official selection. As I mentioned, uh, you need to be nominated in order to be uh, selected. But of course, and thankfully, there are many more nominations that are than there are. Um, uh, room for authors and so there are many competent scholars out there who are never selected um, uh, unfortunately but it's good for the report in the sense that we have a high supply of, um, of uh, high quality researchers who contribute to the research. Um, there are also a number of uh, criteria that feed into the selection process. Uh, of course, the IPCC wants to ensure that there is a reasonable uh, geographical balance in the uh, authorship across uh, chapters and across uh, 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 working groups within the report. Um, uh, dis- scientific disciplines, uh, we also want diversity on that. We want diversity on gender, et cetera. So there are many um, uh, considerations in addition to scientific qualifications that feed into the selection process. And so, personally, I, I nominated myself uh, around about five years ago, and then a, a little bit later I got the information from the IPCC Bureau that I was selected.
0: So uh, the IPCC has appointed more than 700 experts for this report. I think it was 719, to be exact, from 90 different countries. Uh, and. I was wondering how is this work coordinated when there are so many people involved, um, and how do you ex- how did you experience the collaboration with other experts?
1: Yeah, so IPCC is a huge organization. You mentioned uh, more than seven hundred uh, authors. Uh, of course, those seven hundred plus authors are uh, divided into three working groups, and so I've been part of working groups through, So it's only uh, about. 250 authors in that report, even that is a massive number, and that is 250 roughly uh, lead authors and what we call coordinating lead authors who have a special responsibility for the different chapters. But in addition to that, there are a number of contributing authors Who are not selected through the same formal process and do not contribute to entire chapters or to the entire report, but who might be brought on board at the later stage in the development of the report to contribute to particular sections or subsections of specific um, chapters. So, if you also include the contributing authors, uh, there are many, many hundred uh, authors uh, of the work of the part two of the sixth assessment report um, alone. Now, when it comes to coordinating and managing all of this, uh, the the co-chairs of the working group, which are basically the bosses of of uh, uh, the report, uh, do an immense job. They are of course supported by technical staff and by uh, by vice chairs and 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 by the CLAs, the coordinating lead authors, who are the main leaders of the different chapters. And so. Uh, Coordination that affects all chapters within the report is between the CLAs and the and the the chairs of the working group. But within individual chapters, coordinations are led by the coordinating lead authors, the CLAs, uh, with all of the lead authors contributing.
0: Yeah, and uh, what was your experience? How did you experience this whole process of being part of this report and being a chapter lead author?
1: It's I it's it's a fairly overwhelming experience. Um, Uh, So, uh, as part of writing the report, there are four large uh, author meetings, uh, lead author meetings. Um, uh, Fortunately, uh, we managed to uh, organize and and complete three of them before the pandemic struck. And so, we were able to meet in person from across the globe in three different locations um, uh, for a week at a time or more. To discuss both uh, aspects that are, that, are rele- that are relevant to the entire report in various plenary sessions, but also importantly to meet with your fellow authors on the chapter that you've been selected to contribute to um, and have breakout sec- uh, uh, sessions with your chapter uh, co-authors to discuss both the content, conceptual framing, um, how to conduct um, uh, the literature assessment, whether we need to bring on board additional expertise in terms of contributing authors from other chapters or from scientists who have not been invited to be part of this uh, report. So it's uh, there's a lot of coordination, a lot of work that goes into this, and lots of kudos uh, to the to the to the leaders of this uh, major endeavor.
0: So as you're explaining, this has been a huge effort, and the findings are both important and concerning and urgent. Uh, And um, to round off, uh, I would like for you to reflect a bit on the challenges of getting people and specifically policymakers, again, to engage with the findings of the report. What do you see as the main challenges for achieving impact and for converting findings into concrete actions.
1: Now, these are important questions, obviously. I mean, they go to the core of the purpose of contributing to work like this. Um, Actually, one major challenge with the release of of the part two of the uh, uh, report that was released on on February 28th was, of course, the uh, invasion of Ukraine shortly before, because that was all of the news. And so uh, the official launch of the uh, part two of the sixth assessment report on the impacts of climate change on nature and society for that reason probably got less uh, media coverage than it otherwise would have. And so that in and of itself is, is one concern. Uh, that said, I, I still think that the report was very welcome. Uh, it was... Uh, um, Governments were expecting this report, of course, because uh, the report had also just been approved by by members of the IPCC, by national governments. And the press had received embargoed access to the the report a couple of days before it was launched, which meant that they were able to prepare beforehand both to uh, write articles about the report... I had to prepare interviews with the authors. And so in the immediate days after the release, uh, I'm sure all authors, including me, uh, received a lot of requests for various contributions to media, including uh, TV and radio interviews, uh, uh, newspaper interviews, etc. And so you would think that there's a lot of publicity that comes automatically and almost for free. Um, and to some extent, that is true. I mean, uh, even despite what was going on elsewhere in the world, Uh, the report did reach the top headlines of major news outlets during the day of the release. What we probably do see as a negative impact, though, is that it quickly lost attention. So aside from uh, what might happen elsewhere in the world that uh, distracts attention away from the report, another challenge uh, with reaching out to decision makers and having a clear impact on decision makers, and of course also the general public, is that... To some extent, this report may be perceived as just repeating what we have all heard before. So potentially, there is some level of fatigue, both among policy actors and in the general public, that there is just this one more report that repeats the urgency, but uh, without necessarily coming up with much new. I would, of course, dispute that there is a lot that is new in this report, including also... Uh, a number of um, uh, details and evidence on what works in terms of adaptation, for example. Uh, but even so, I think one inherent challenge with communicating uh, this report is that it may be perceived by many as, as as just a repetition of what people have heard before.
0: As a chapter lead author and as a contributor to the sixth assessment report. Um, I was wondering if there are any consequences and findings that you believe have received uh, haven't received enough attention in the report.
1: Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I think it is important that uh, we all take away from the report the urgency that is front and center in the report. So that has received a lot of attention and for very good good reasons. Um, but maybe there are some more positive or optimistic aspects that, uh, of the report that, has not necess- that have not necessarily received the attention that, it, uh, that they might deserve, uh, including the example that I mentioned earlier about uh, uh, examples of successful adaptation. Um, and and uh, here I would, for example, refer to the fact that although we have seen a dramatic increase in the frequency of certain severe uh, weather events, uh, the uh, mortality, global mortality from, for example, flooding or from storms, have been on a long-term decline. Even, even also, um, when we know that uh, population have, has been growing, and especially so in areas that have been particularly exposed to these weather extremes. And so that says something about uh, societies successful ability to adjust and adapt to increasing weather extremes. That doesn't mean that we will always continue to adapt in the similar and successful manner, such that human uh, loss from from extreme weather events will continue to decline. But that is one example where we actually, at the global scale, appear that we have um, at least so far been successfully adapting to the changing climate. Uh, Of course, there are also important sub-regional variation in those trends, Um, But at the global level, this is, I think, uh, a positive piece of information that often is lost when we discuss the the grave and urgent uh, and and challenging aspects of climate change.
0: Thank you, Halvar. As you said, the Ukraine war has taken all of the attention over the past few weeks. And therefore, I think it is important that we have this episode where we talk about another topic that we cannot afford to put to the side. It is an urgent topic and the consequences of climate change are basically the biggest existential threat to our planet and something that cannot be talked about enough. So thank you again for joining me uh, for this episode. It's been a real privilege to be able to talk with and listen to someone who is so close on these high-level processes uh, and an expert on the consequences of climate change.
1: Thank you for having me.